Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and joining me today to discuss pre-implantation genetic testing is Dr. Serena Chen. We have a fantastic show for you today, and I am delighted to be able to talk about this most unique form of, of reproduction uh, that is really the most advanced technology that we have available. Pre-implantation genetic testing is exactly how it sounds. It's basically taking an embryo and testing it prior to implantation. It has some background to it. It's been in development in different stages over the years. So I wanted to have uh, Dr. Serena Chen uh, talk to us about this and give us her insight because her center in New Jersey has had a lot of experience with this. Dr. Chen serves as director for the Division of Reproductive Medicine in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at St. Barnabas Medical Center and the Institute for Reproductive Medicine and Science at St. Barnabas. She's also Clinical Associate Professor at Rutgers UMDNJ Medical School, as well as St. George's University School of Medicine. So just as a side note, uh, uh, this is uh, home to me. I'm from Northern New Jersey, and uh, I went to Rutgers Medical School. Uh, so Serena and I have a pretty similar background to where she is right now. She's also one of less than a handful of reproductive endocrinologists recognized by Inside Jersey Magazine as a top doctor in cancer care for her work freezing eggs for cancer patients and raising physician awareness and public awareness on oncofertility and fertility preservation. She really loves empowering her patients with information. She is on social media. She and I got to know each other through social media because we're always on there answering questions and having insightful posts and and responding. Uh, She always responds with some fantastic comments. Uh, so she's a real patient advocate, and I was delighted that she wanted to be a part of this show. Uh, you can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram. She's at Dr. Serena H. Chen. So I'll say D-R-S-E-R-E-N-A-H Chen, C-H-E-N. So with that impressive resume and, and all of your experience, Serena, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That was an awesome introduction. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm delighted. And, and you know, Uncle Fertility is another uh, personal interest in, in me. We'll, we'll be covering that in another podcast, and so maybe we'll be able to get some insights uh, in, a, in a future show with you. So, Serena, we'll, let, yeah, well, let's just jump right into it. Uh, for our audience, how would you explain to them uh, the, the history that brings us to the modern pre-implantation genetic testing. So pre-implantation genetic testing evolved in like the 1990s where we had, we're looking at embryos in the lab and seeing that a lot of embryos were looking very beautiful and developing very beautifully and yet transferring embryo after embryo after embryo and finding that a lot of the pregnancy tests were negative. And uh, wondering what was going on or people getting pregnant and then having a completely abnormal pregnancy like let's say uh, trisomy 16 where 
that's uh, one of the most common causes for miscarriage. There's not even a fetus that developed. So um, people were thinking, well, if we could tell something about the chromosomes that comprise that embryo, perhaps we would do a better job of selecting embryos that were more likely to become babies and reducing the risk for chromosomally abnormal embryos and therefore reducing the risk for miscarriage. In addition, um, you know, I think one of the very first pre-implantation genetic testing cases was actually in um, England. I don't know that I have all the all the fa- all my exact timeline straight, but I know one of the very first cases that were reported that resulted in a baby. They actually both parents were carriers for cystic fibrosis. And um, Dr. Handyside, I think, reported a birth of a healthy baby after pre-implantation genetic testing for cystic fibrosis in the embryo and implanting only a normal or carrier embryo so that a healthy child was born to this couple. So it's been around, I think, first healthy pregnancies were in the 1990s, but pregnancy rates were definitely a lot lower than they were now in um, Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, I think, got very quickly approved for diseases like cystic fibrosis and Tay-Sachs because um, the data was very clear that the testing definitely prevented us from transferring abnormal embryos that carried disease or dramatically reduced the risk for disease, even though the testing was not exactly as accurate as an amniocentesis, but dramatically reduced the risk. So I think that type of pre-implantation genetic testing, now known as PGT-M for mutation, um, is definitely considered non-experimental and has been for many years. And if somebody has good infertility coverage, may actually be covered by insurance. Whereas PGT-A for aneuploidy, where we check the chromosome, still is considered a little bit controversial and um and is not exactly considered standard of care or non-experimental, even though I would say most all my patients, and I'm sure, Mark, your patients say this to you also, well, why wouldn't I want to do that testing? Why wouldn't I want to have a completely normal embryo transferred? So that's where things get complicated is that because the testing is invasive, we were finding in the very beginning that that uh, a lot of studies showed that because we were taking cells out from the embryo, um, we were actually lowering the pregnancy rate because in the early yeah. days we used to take out cells on day three and that would remove like at least 15% or more of the embryo. Nowadays, we can take cells out when the embryo is a blastocyst and has 100 or maybe even 200 cells and we're only taking out 5 to 10 cells. So it's a much smaller percentage of the embryo that we're removing. So it does seem that as the technology has moved forward over since the 1990s, the PGT has gotten a lot less safer to get those cells. So that was one of the biggest barriers in the beginning, even though obviously the information could is hugely important and very useful if you're going to like hurt the embryo to get the information, obviously then the risk outweigh the benefits. Let me just, uh, excellent, excellent summary, uh, Serena. Uh, I just, just for the audience purposes, we, we went back, uh, well, we started with, with, with pre-implantation genetic testing at that cleavage stage, which we were saying is day three, and at that cell stage, 
just for our listeners, six to eight cells are where the embryo is. And imagine taking one to two cells of that six to eight cells, almost a 25% removal. And what has been shown subsequently is that up to 40% of those embryos were having a lower uh, uh, implantation. So it, it really was not resulting in, in good outcomes. But the other thing is, is and, and uh, Serena, I know you're going to touch on this, is that the embryo has the potential to correct. Uh, and this is, I think, where we get into a big dilemma. You know, you and I were both at the annual meeting of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine in Denver uh, in 2018, and, and that uh, was a big debate over which patients would benefit. Is it really harmful? Is there an advantage? And so talk to, talk to us a little bit about this ability for an embryo to correct. You know, we're, we're, we're removing cells at the blastocyst stage on the outer part of the embryo, which is the future placenta, but... Right, we're not testing the embryo itself. Right. So even though we're removing a portion of the embryo, small sample, um, we're removing it from the, the trophectoderm, which be, eventually becomes the, uh, the placenta. And the placenta, there's not as much pressure on the placenta to be chromosomally normal. And we know that a placenta can function perfectly normally and still have um, chromosomal abnormalities. And some cells can be normal and some cells can be abnormal. And as long as the baby is fine, um, the placenta may still function totally normally. And that's called mosaicism, placental mosaicism, where you have different cell populations. Some of them have normal chromosomes and some of them do not. Um, is actually a common thing and maybe actually kind of normal in humans because placentas, it's, it's, I guess, a lot easier to be a placenta than it is to become a baby. And so the, the genetic requirements are not quite as rigorous. Uh, but the whole correction thing is very interesting and we're, you know, I mean, that speaks to all the subtleties in this testing. I mean, I think all of us can 100% agree that a nor- it's better to transfer a normal embryo than an abnormal embryo. The hard part is that this testing, while it's extremely sophisticated and highly technically complex and very, very advanced, it still is far from perfect. And um, we have to remember that we're testing a little teeny tiny embryo. It's smaller than you could see with the naked eye, and we're taking only a teeny, teeny, tiny part of that embryo and then we're putting the rest of the embryo in the freezer and then we take those few cells and we really can't test just those cells. We actually have to amplify the DNA in there and the amplification process, while it's really interesting and complicated and and uh, just a wonder to behold, it's, it's not perfect and if you amplify and you don't amplify correctly, you could generate mistakes in, in that cell population and then if you take a part of the placenta that doesn't totally reflect exactly what's in the embryo, then your test result might not correlate with the embryo. Um, and then the other thing is if, you, if the embryo has both normal and abnormal cells, probably the normal cells are going to grow much more rapidly and much more healthily than the abnormal cells. And so, you know, that's where we get this correction part is the normal cells are growing, the abnormal cells die out, and then an embryo that has a few abnormal cells maybe corrects itself and ends up, you know, when it's a baby with no abnormal cells. On the other hand, 
mosaicism might be totally normal. Like you and I might be mosaic sitting here doing this podcast even as we speak, and yet we're still, you know, successful people that are functioning well. Um, mosaicism can happen in all living things because it's complicated to divide yourselves and to divide up the chromosomes exactly evenly, and so little mistakes might be made, and that can create mosaicism, which is where some cells have a normal chromosome complement, and some cells maybe have something a little bit different. Um, so there's so much that goes into this testing. Number one, yes. are we, you know, this is microsurgery on the embryo. So even though we're testing, we're not testing the baby part, we're testing the placenta part, still, if you're not good at it, you can really harm the embryo. Like if you do a bad job of biopsying those cells, you can harm the embryo. If you're not good at freezing the embryo, you're not good at thawing the embryo, you can harm the embryo. And so then having like these awesome test results are are not really helpful. So you definitely, it's it's a very cool technology, but it is a sophisticated technology that does require a tremendous amount of science and behind it, and people kind of have to know what they're doing. And there is always a little bit of a risk, even if you have an outstanding laboratory that's very good at doing these biopsies and very good at doing the testing, the testing is never going to be 100% accurate and the biopsies are never going to be 100% risk-free. So if you have a scenario like that, then we have to make sure that the, te- we, that the test result is really going to make a difference for this patient. So if you have somebody like a 25-year-old donor where the risk for genetic abnormalities is really very low, the pregnancy rate is very high, is it really truly helpful to take these risks, even if they're small, to get this test result, right? So we're always doing that thing of where we're weighing the risks and benefits for each right. patient. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I'm going to put you on the spot now a little bit because when you talked about risk, you know, our ethic is obviously to do no harm. And my concern with this technology is have we completely removed the risk of harm? And let's... Let me let me clarify that a little bit. The literature supports that the 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 comparison uh, between the outer part of the embryo where we biopsy and then the inner cell mass, which is really the future baby, there's a difference of about four percent. That seems to be what's accepted now of a discrepancy between the that outer cell mass of the I'm sorry the outer trifectoderm and the inner cell mass. Then you have the issues of mosaicism, where there are some clinics, as you know, that and, uh, and ours is one of them, that we do not report mosaicism. We really just... Get an right, and we, and we do. So here okay. we are. I feel like we're both good doctors, but we're doing something very different, and that's, yes. part of the, that's part of the issue. This is a very tough area. I'm not sure that I necessarily have the right answer. You know, I so think... Just, I, I, know you anticipated, I know you anticipated my question, but just for the listeners... What I was getting at is, are we potentially discarding an embryo that would turn out to be a healthy baby? What we know in the mosaic world, and, and I hope this is not over the heads of, of, of our listeners, but mosaicism is where you can actually have two cell lines that, are, that, are, that were discovered, one normal and one abnormal, but when we transfer those embryos, it's, uh, there's a higher rate of miscarriage, and not everybody's transferring them, but there are some centers that do, higher rate of miscarriage, lower implantation potential, but to date, 
it does not seem that there's any birth defects that have resulted from this. But what I'm getting at is, are we discarding embryos that are either mosaic, that we don't know, and we're being, they're called abnormal, or that the outer trophectoderm area that's being biopsied is not matching the inner cell mass, and we are discarding, unfortunately, an embryo that would otherwise have, have developed into a healthy baby. So that's, that's an outstanding question, and I think if you get 10 scientists, genetic, you know, embryologists in the room, you could have 20 different answers. Uh, the way we're handling it is we look at the patient profile and the risk. And, um, and you know, this is why we're not doing as much uh, genetic testing in, in younger patients. Now, still, you know, we, we do offer it to everybody. If, if the patient's right to do it, if they want to, we do make sure they have formal genetic counseling and a thorough discussion with the doctor, and they have to know that they could be in this position where they have these mosaic embryos and some of them could be babies and yet they're having some of this abnormal testing and we, we're not going to be able to tell them exactly what to do with these embryos. We are seeing, we do have some data and there obviously has to be a lot more data where we've had embryos donated to us for uh, research and it does seem like if the embryos, all the cells are completely abnormal or all the cells are completely normal it does seem like the correlation between the trophectoderm and the inner cell mass seems to be better than when you have mosaic embryos. When you have mosaic embryos, it does seem like they could be um, there could be a lack of correlation, and so that's where the mosaic embryo issue comes into play. And I know a lot of a lot of people are very very nervous about the mosaic embryos, but you're right, we haven't had any crazy, weird birth defects, and we really should not because we're transferring the same embryos we always have. We probably have been transferring mosaic embryos for many, many years. We just didn't know it. If this is a new test. This is not CRISPR. This is not genetic modification. These are still those same in vitro embryos that we've been basically making since 1978. So um, it's really just the test that's confusing. And, you know, for some patients, Mark, I feel like, you know, if you have a patient that has had, you know, three miscarriages and two of them were really late because they were due to, like, trisomy 21 or something, you know, really awful and they're totally traumatized, I think some of those patients might be like, oh, I know the testing is a little bit risky, but I just can't, I just can't do this again. I just have to lower my risk for, for ab an abnormal chromosome as much as I possibly can, so I want to test my embryo no matter what. Whereas, you know, if you have uh, a younger woman, say, 35 years old with tubal disease and never been pregnant before and otherwise healthy, then she's going to be like, no, I don't really want to do that testing or, or take the risk for my embryo. I'm just infertile. I've never had a miscarriage. You know, it, you know, let nature take its course. If the embryos, you know, if I miscarry, I miscarry, but, I, you know, I don't want to take that risk of testing my embryo and I don't want to wrestle with that decision-making of an unclear result. Well, let me, let me just mention, uh, Serena, uh, that, uh, and all excellent, excellent points. Uh, you know, this is exciting technology. It has the potential to provide valuable information to patients and physicians. I, I just think our field, and this may be getting into some pontification and philosophical, but I just think our field, you know, we are so pressured uh, to provide patients with the latest 
uh, ability to optimize uh, uh, th their outcomes. While this is the best we have, we really have to ask ourselves, is it good enough? Now, if, if patients, as patients would take risks, obviously, that you described some, and we all know the devastation of infertility and the desperation, and it's just heart-wrenching. And, and patients will do things. They will do experimental therapy. They will do things that uh, the risk-benefit ratio is, is really, really uh, questionable. Uh, the point being is that we have put this out there. We have made this available. We have had the medical studies out there and the press releases and the videos and all of the notoriety that goes with the amazing technology that's potentially available. So we have exposed patients to this technology and while it seems to be there may be a place for it, it's still in tremendous debate at the annual meeting, it was vehemently and spiritedly debated. But the point is, is, is it good enough that we should be exposing our patients to a technology that we don't really have a great handle on the uh, true uh, clinical usefulness and which patients are truly going to be benefiting from, that, from it the most, and also are we able to give enough accurate information to assure patients, yeah, this is your result and this is what we what I think you should do? I don't, you know, there's no answer to that. And I didn't mean to... There's, you know, uh, there's no answer to that question. I think those are very, very, very good questions to raise. You are probably asking the wrong girl about those questions <laughs> just because I'm from, you know, St. Barnabas. And, you know, I, I when I started here... Uh, Jacques Cohen was head of the scientific program. Santiago Munet was the head of the PGT program. So, uh, you know, those, those are my colleagues and my friends that I've worked with for decades now. Um, and obviously the St. Barnabas philosophy is, uh, does tend to push the envelope. And the problem with that approach is that then it does put a huge decision-making burden upon the patients. But we also try to take the time to really, really counsel people about the pros and the cons and the implications. And we do feel that very, very strongly about uh, patient information, education, and autonomy. And um, and to and I and I think you know we shy away from kind of the very, very old-fashioned kind of patriarchal approach of the doctor knows best. We we try, you know, we that, and that's one philosophy. I'm not saying that uh, that's the only way to treat patients, but that happens to be just our how we've evolved and our personal philosophy. Maybe because we're in an environment where we're working with, where we've had the privilege of working with some of the leading scientists in the world on this technology, and saying, you know, well, here are some tools. And honestly, Mark, when we first started, when we started doing this PGT, and then we moved to MGS. We, we basically took a leap of faith and said, okay, these are, these are some of the top scientists in the world. They're telling us, uh, about this testing. Let's see what the potential is. Let's talk to our patients about it. Let's make sure they're counseled about the risks and the benefits. But some of the consequences of that technology, uh, some of it you're learning as you go along. Like some, you know, we're, we're finding that, okay, well, 
standard, you know, standard society talk says, okay, don't do genetic testing unless you're older. But a lot of my younger patients, you know, you have a PCO patient with 20 embryos, she doesn't want to do 20 transfers. Um, you know, so, you know, and even though we're seeing some results that are um, not so clear, we will get some clearly normal results, and it does help her kind of uh, with her strategy of which embryos to thaw first and which embryos to give a much lower priority to. And that's, you know, that's not something talked about in the standard guidelines. So I, I've seen this technology, and I see totally what you're saying. It does put a huge burden upon the patients, but it also puts a burden then and a responsibility upon the physicians to really, if we're going to use this technology, to treat the patient as a partner in her own care and make sure that she understands the things that we know and also understands the other things we don't know, which it, which you're right. Um, is a huge, there's a huge segment that we don't know. We don't have a lot of answers to these questions. Well, it certainly, I think, was a valuable topic for our patients because as much as it's, it's heavily debated in our world, uh, it, the more information that we can give our patients, uh, uh, the better, uh, so that they can be their own advocate. And you have always done that, and I've always admired that. I'm just going to finish up by by asking you, uh, what is your recommendation, uh, Serena, as, as who is the best uh, patient? What what is the best patient population to use the the PGT for aneuploidy, which is chromosome testing? And, and just quickly for the listeners, this is not for genetic testing, that, that is uh, PGTM, that's for cy uh, cystic fibrosis or sickle cell carrier status of different genetic disorders. So who's going to benefit uh, in your estimation, Serena, uh, quick, quickly before we finish up? So for PGTA to check for chromosomes, things like Down syndrome and those types of things, and we definitely like to encourage our patients over 40 that are doing IVF to do PGT. Uh, we also like to encourage people with recurrent first trimester loss uh, because most first trimester loss, as you know, is, is, is due to identifiable chromosomal abnormalities. Um, beyond that, we, we do tell people it's, 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 it's considered really experimental. The benefits are not totally clear. We don't... Um, we're not really encouraging in our, with our patients using donor egg because we do feel like you can end up with a lot of gorgeous-looking embryos with, um, you know, mixed results where you're not sure what to do with the embryo, and yet, yeah. you know, they could be perfectly, perfectly good embryos. And we do, because aneuploidy is lower in a younger population, proportionately, you end up with more mosaic embryos, so then you end up, I think, just more confused. And, right, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, so I'm, we're, we're not doing as much in them. But ultimately, every single patient at St. Barnabas at IRMS is, is offered the chance to do PGT mm -hmm. if they want it. You know, we're not going to say no, but everybody has to have counseling. Right, oh, absolutely. And, you know, we didn't talk too much about miscarriage. I mean, the literature quotes about 10%. But I have seen and talked to others that are seeing maybe 20 to 30 percent uh, miscarriage. So it's it's really uh, it's evolving. We need to know uh, more about this, and and I hope that this becomes more clear. Uh, in, 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 uh, <laughs> I hope so too. But you know, maybe our next topic will be to discuss um, polygenic. 
pre-implantation genetic testing, which we both just heard about for the first time at this at this last meeting, because that brings up um, many, many more questions. So I think we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and and uh, it's also uh, something for the listeners to know that that we still advise uh, uh, pregnancy testing uh, once the patient's pregnant, even though they have this testing, and you're offering Absolutely. that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really huge, and a lot of obstetricians, I'm finding. Uh, both patients and obstetricians are confused by that, and you're right. We have to remember to remind everybody, just because you had the PGT testing does not mean you should not do all the preconception prenatal testing that everybody else does. I totally agree. Well, uh, wonderful, Serena, and thanks for listening to our Fertility Health podcast. Uh, uh, I want to give uh, extreme appreciation to Dr. Serena Chen for her uh, tremendous insights and experience. Uh, if there's anything from today's show you all want to learn more about, please check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this, in this episode. Uh, you can reach Dr. Chen uh, at her Twitter or Instagram. Uh, ID is at Dr. Serena H. Chen, and uh, she is very active in social media, and uh, she'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.